Okay, so today's episode is going to be, we're going to talk about the book of Revelations. And I figure the best way to start this series is to just kind of do an introduction of what is the book? How did we, you know, get it? And what was going on at that time period, just to kind of set up how how we got this book. Right. Well, as, during this part of the first century, there was uh, severe persecution against uh, against the believers, basically everywhere. And the apostles were no different. In this case, specifically, uh, John the Beloved. And John was at this point incarcerated on the island of Patmos, okay, uh, for his faith. And a very unpleasant uh, situation. This wasn't, you know, club fed, as it were. No. uh, Where, you know, all of the amenities uh, uh, are available to you. No, it was pretty much rough first century um, island prison. And so you're, you're looking at this situation. Um, now, a lot of people debate about when this happened. Some would like to push the date back, you know, before uh, 70 AD or before, some basically later in the first century in the 90s or so. Um, there's a reference uh, by uh, Eusebius of Caesarea saying that basically this uh, was uh, given, uh, if memory serves correctly, in the reign of the uh, Emperor Domitian, which would have been in the, about in the 90s uh, of, that, of that century. So, you know, there's uh, scholars debate as they debate everything. <laughs> um, but would it appear that it was written somewhat late, uh, if, if Eusebius's statement is true in the first century. And of course, this was written by, uh, written down by uh, John the Beloved, as we said, incarcerated at the time on Patmos. And it's while he's there on Patmos. In fact, it says in Revelation, uh, basically, check this here really quickly. Verse 9, he talks about uh, of the first chapter, I, John, who am also your brother and companion in tribulation, basically in trouble, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Then he says in uh, verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha Omega, the first and the last and what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches, which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And, and so this was given basically um, to him to be shared. And one of the things that people need to understand, and, and this was, like you say, originally sent to the seven churches uh, of uh, Asia, basically Asia Minor, uh, the area which is now modern-day Turkey, okay? Uh, all of those cities uh, in what was then called Asia Minor are, are now in the borders of that country. 
And so because God has, and as you read through Revelation, specific things that he said to those seven congregations. And so they received it first, and from then it was shared with others. Eventually, the book of Revelation became part of what we call the canon of Scripture. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it became a part of the official New Testament. Um, there were hot debates about what belonged and did not belong in the New Testament when that was being done. And one of the um, uh, debates uh, that was hottest was over the book of Revelation. Um, It is the only basically fully prophetic book in the New Testament. I mean, the Old Testament, you've got the prophets, Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and such, uh, the major and the minor prophets. But in the New Testament, you know, it's basically the Gospels, the letters to the churches, uh, the book of Acts. But then you've got one book, Revelation, that is basically All pretty prophetic. much exactly. And so this was a, and although the Gospels uh, do contain uh, prophecies and such, and the letters contains explanations of, of what's going to happen and information about what's going to happen betwe- uh, before the return of the Lord, what they call ex- eschatology, mm-hmm. which is the study of the events preceding the return of Jesus Christ. This is, this is a situation where um, it was hotly debated. Uh, the first, you know, there were various standards that we used to see whether or not this made the Bible. One other thing was, did it have apostolic authority? In short, was the author an apostle or somebody who had firsthand access to the apostles? You know, when you have apostles like um, Matthew and John writing the Gospels of Matthew and John, that's pretty much a no-brainer. Yeah. You know, when you have people like John Mark and Luke, the physician writing the Gospels of Mark and Luke. Mm-hmm. You know, you uh, Luke, however, had in terms of the Gospel of St. Luke and in uh, the book of Acts, he had access to both Peter and Paul. Yeah. So although he was not an apostle, he had firsthand direct knowledge from, from the apostles, apostles of, of these events. And so... You know, once you get to that point, and of course the question became, did John actually write the book of Revelation? Ultimately, it was decided, yes, he was the author. Mm -hmm. Um, Because in the early churches, you didn't have the situation where, you know, you had a complete New Testament. You had the letters of Paul that were being circulated. You had the various gospels that were being... uh, but unfortunately, there were people that were pe- uh, that were penning bogus doc uh, documents, bogus gospels, bogus letters, in the name of apostles, and sometimes in the name of early church leaders, bishops, and uh, and, and such. And it's again. So they were trying to sort out what was in fact. Yeah, they wanted to make sure that it was actually what yeah. what it was. Yeah, it's like this was not one who basically penned this under. 
under a, um, under a pseudonym yeah. of an apostle or a bishop and is passing it off as theirs. As if it was. And yeah. so this is actually a... Even though a lot of people probably wish that's what happened with the with, with this book in particular. Well, this book has been basically a stumbling block for a lot of people um, because it does not paint uh, sometimes the prettiest picture of what the events uh, uh, preceding the return of, of Christ to the earth are. But, you know, neither do the accounts... Um, in Matthew chapter 24 or Luke 21 or such, nor do the um, un, uh, as yet to be fulfilled scriptures in the Old Testament yeah. uh, paint a pretty picture, which actually, and I should mention, that's going to bring us to a subject called preterism, okay? Um, What's that? Okay, uh, I'll, basically... When people try to interpret the uh, book of Revelation and sometimes prophetic scriptures, sometimes all scriptures in, um, but particularly prophetic scriptures, they use um, a methodology. Okay. Which is, the theological term is hermeneutic. That's the 50-buck title for basically the principles by which you interpret the Bible. Okay. And uh, their hermeneutic or their methodology uh, of doing this, basically, Revelation has been, is for the most part, modern days, you fall into one of three camps the preterist, the historicist, and the futurist. Okay. Okay. And preterists are people who believe that virtually all of the Bible, including the prophetic passages, have been mostly or sometimes completely fulfilled uh, by uh, 70 A.D. or no later than the end of the first century. Uh, preterism uh, maintains, and, and there's two different camps in preterism. There's what's called partial preterism. That's the more traditional brand of, of it. And by the way, praetor, uh, praetorism comes from the word praetor. It simply means past. Okay. Which uh, somebody who is a praetorist or uh, is somebody who thinks that all of these things are past. They're already fulfilled. They're, they're, more, they're no longer prophecy, they're history. And so the, uh, the praetorist, basically the what are called partial ones, they believe that basically everything in the scripture has been fulfilled except for the actual return of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, and um, so as I was saying, the, uh, the uh, three things that basically have not yet happened according to the, pre, the, the partial preterist, the um, return, of, return Christ. of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, and the judgment. Yeah. Okay, the final judgment. These three things are not yet fulfilled to the partial preterist. Mm. Um, what's called full preterism or complete or consistent preterism believes that even those three things have been fulfilled. Really? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So what are we living in now? Then? The new heavens and the new earth. This is not that great then. <laughs> 
Well, I uh, feel gypped. deeply, deeply disappointing. Let me put it that I way. I feel um, yes. I feel a, very gypped if that's if that's the case. So mm-hmm. we're in the new heaven right now. The new heavens and the earth, new earth. Then how do you explain? To, according to the full preterist. Okay. Now the full preterism is it's kind of a new thing. Yeah. Um. Most, like I say, the partial preterists are are the more traditional ones. Yeah. But there's a a there's a group a that group thinks. that actually says yes because what you do is you take the scriptures and you spiritualize them. Okay. Okay. Um, for instance, the uh, preterists are what co- are called amillennialists, okay. which is basically they don't believe in a literal thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ upon the earth. They think and, and teach that the millennium is actually a, a metaphor and an illustration of, uh, of something else. And, and they, they say it illegitimately. This is kind of the way they deal with the millennium, for instance. Uh, a lot of people believe that the millennium, and again, even within, in all of these interpretations, you have your varying camps within camps, okay? Yeah. But one of the things that you see with uh, millennialism is it becomes symbolic. And many times it's like the, that we have been in the millennial reign since basically uh, the time of Christ, when Christ was seated on his throne, when the church age began on earth as, as to use dispensational um, vernacular, and that's the representation of the kingdom on earth. Therefore, the kingdom has come. The, it, it, it is the millennium. Yeah. And so the millennium is not a specific... Uh, it's not a specific thousand, time. Yeah, it, it's symbolic of the reign of Jesus Christ through his people upon the earth from time immemorial. It okay. sounds like a stretch. <laughs> a lot of people have a hard time buying it. It's one of the reasons why preterism is not currently very trendy. Yeah. Um, and so what you had was, again... Um, this is one of the difficulties that people have with preterism. And so right now, according to the scripture, for instance, um, Satan is bound for during the time of, of the millennium. Yeah. So apparently Satan has been bound since basically for nearly 2,000 years. Mm-hmm. One would hate to think what it was like if he were unbound. Yeah. Um, if this is just how it is. If this is just how it is with us messing things up without, you know, Satan's full-fledged activity, one would hate to think. But at any rate, yes, again, these are. this is part of why a lot of people have a difficulty with preterism is that, for instance, basically chapter 6 through 18 of mm-hmm. the Revelation become nothing more than... than Symbols. Now, there's a lot of symbolisms in the Bible, um, but the problem is the way that these symbols are interpreted. Yeah. They are interpreted in such a way as to try to lend themselves to a first century fulfillment. Yeah. And, is, and the problem is it becomes a real stretch. The mark of the beast, the, you know, uh, 
it, it becomes very difficult yeah. to, to do this because you're having to more and more spiritualize these things. The problem with taking these things and moving them away from the literal meaning is that at some point you run into the danger of when you can take anything that is written as is and making it into something else, then nothing has any true fixed meaning. Yeah. This is, this is a weakness that you have to really be aware of when interpreting symbols or saying what is or is not a symbol. You need to take things as literally as possible unless it is specifically stated that it is a, symbolic a symbol thing. or is obvious from the context that it is a symbol. It seems and, like Revelation is the only book they do this to. Um, for the most part. For the most part. Daniel gets the treatment a lot, some um, some Old Testament prophets. But yeah, it becomes a real difficulty. Now, and, and then, of course, then you get into full preterism, which is where a lot of people, you know, the, the thing about it is the preterists have a real desire to... Um, they, they are sincere in their beliefs. Yeah. And their motivations are good. What they don't like is what's called the liberal theologians who maintained that Jesus was wrong and didn't know what he was talking about on the Mount of Olives when he's saying things like, you will not have went over the hills and cities of Jerusalem until I return or this generation shall not pass Matthew 24 until all of these things be fulfilled etc etc and they say well what Jesus is saying here is that basically he expects within 40 years or so or a generation however long that might be you know if if you're saying that, that maybe a generation is 70 years, yeah, it's like you got between 40 and 70 years between the late 20s, early 30s of the uh, uh, time that Jesus walked the uh, earth during his ministry. You got basically till somewhere around the uh, year 70 to 100 for yeah. this generation to be fulfilled. And so if Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about, Mm-hmm. about this generation, then their thing is he either comes off as an idiot or he was wrong. Yeah. And there are people who actually believe that Jesus didn't know what he was talking about and he was just flat wrong about the timing of these things that he said, that Jesus really believed that this was going to happen in the first century but Jesus didn't know what he was talking about. He was wrong. And so these are the, quote, liberal theologians. That now, is very dangerous. Yeah, you're telling me. If you're basically saying, yeah, yeah Jesus didn't know what he was talking about. Jesus missed it. He, didn't, he was clueless. Yeah, because at that point, you have to understand, one of the, uh, the, the basic meaning of sin, the basic meaning of sin in in the uh, in the original language is to miss the mark. Yeah, it's an arrow that misses its target, and it's like so. If you're, it, it, it's not just about trespasses. It's not about transgressions of the law. It's not about you know 
intentionally doing evil. It's about just missing it. Yeah. Well, if you miss it, that's sin. Well, then what happens to the sinless perfection of Jesus Christ doctrine? Yeah. And if Jesus is not sinless, this is one of the reasons why some people believe that Jesus sinned. You're seeing this in statistics. There is a large number of people who say that they are Christians. They are professing Christians who actually believe that Jesus Christ sinned while he walked the earth. Okay? This is one of a number of mentalities that lead you into this kind of belief. I feel like a lot of people say things, but they don't read the Bible. It's it's a scary... If you read the Bible, you can be like, okay, well, yeah, no, he was sinless. He did not. Because then, if you say he has sin, then he's just no better than anyone else. And at that point, then his You death, take the godly part out. Well, the problem is, once you take away his sinless perfection, then he is an unworthy sacrifice. Yeah. And the actual atoning work of Jesus Christ is that of a sinful person being crucified on a cross. And therefore, it's like, where is redemption in that? Exactly. Where is atonement in that? And it's like, because at the end of the day, Jesus Christ just becomes another sinner who died on a cross. Yeah. And so it's like... Yeah, you can't really do that. Yeah. So these quote-unquote liberal theologians who believe that Jesus was clueless. Now, here's the problem. Now, here's the situation. Now, the preterists say, we've got to rescue Jesus's reputation. Oh. Okay. It's It, it looks to us like the, quote, liberal theologians are right, that Jesus believed that basically everything he was talking about on the Mount of Olives there, this Matthew 24 deal, Luke 21, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. all this stuff is going to happen in the first. And we've got to save Jesus from himself. Okay. So basically what we've got to do is we've got to interpret scripture in such a way that everything gets fulfilled in the first century. Otherwise, the, uh, the obvious ramifications, Jesus sinned, Jesus missed it. All of these things that happened to the sinless perfection and the, and the atoning work and on all these things. It, it, it's like if we allow this domino to fall, then all of the other dominoes fall. And so does faith. So the preterists, give, I give them credit. The preterists are very, very sincere in their desire to, quote, rescue Jesus and the gospel from the liberal theologians and the unbelievers. Yeah. So in that way, I, I have respect for the preterists. You understand where you they're coming from. a very sincere, pure motivation. But, We've got to save Jesus. But still. And the gospel. He's like, we got to save him. Now the their methodology is I will I, I I I will dispute that for forever, but I respect their sincerity. Yeah. And their motivation. And so now when you get to stuff like and here's the problem. Most people are willing to cut the the uh partial preterists a certain amount of slack. Yeah. Okay. Because although they don't agree with their position, as I I do not. I recognize their sincerity. Now, their hermeneutic, their methodology, and, and the way they go about interpreting the scriptures, that, 
that yeah. I will gladly debate that I completely disagree with you know there are and and many people online take them to task for um, the situations you know because it depending on when you think the the millennial reign started when was the kingdom inaugurated how was it you know um yeah it... and all that now you gotta understand uh only the full preterists believe we're currently in the new heavens and yeah and the new earth the actual partial preterists still believe we're basically in the millennial reign okay there is a difference. It's actually an important one when you get into theological hair splitting. I want to make sure that I make that perfectly clear. I do get the difference. Yeah, there is a difference. you got to love how they just are like, no, actually, this means this. And it's like, we're right because we're using this term. And so it, it gets, well, and, and here's the thing. The, the, um, the real people that are usually taking the task over this mm-hmm. are what's called the full preterists. Let's say Jesus has come, the resurrection has occurred. They're the ones that say the, everything's done. Right. And so you have the problem is you have statements that go as far back as the book of Job. Job actually said basically, and I'll paraphrase this, but you can anybody who wants to can look it up. He says basically my physical body will become food for the worms. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, I know that in this body I shall see God. Yeah. I mean, he's not spiritualizing this. He's not allegorizing this. He's not, you know, and then you get into the situation. And for what he went through, he would, there'd be no reason to be metaphorical. Exactly. And people are quick to point out Jesus was literally crucified, literally died, literally was buried, and literally resurrected. Yes. And if the literal resurrection of the uh, of of the Lord occurred, and we are to expect a resurrection, should we not therefore expect an actual literal physical uh, resurrection. resurrection? And it's this that basically uh, Paul refers to when he writes to the church at Thessalonica. It's like. You know, I want you to know, uh, brethren, that those who preceded us in death, we, you know, they're going to be resurrected first, mm-hmm. and then we who are alive and remain will be changed. And so, it, it's like the resurrection is going to happen. It's very much a literal thing, and and basically. Uh, one of the major doctrines of the early church was if you did not believe in the literal resurrection of the dead, you were basically considered, you know, that was considered heresy. Mm. I mean, it was a big deal. Um, You had people who basically let it be known. This is how it is uh, among the early bishops. And so, um, you know, this is one of these things where... uh, and of course, Paul wrote some statements to the effect of like, listen, uh, you deny the resurrection. And, and, and so, but and the, these people, the full preachers would say, well, we don't deny the resurrection. We just believe that it happened in this manner. Yeah. But when they make it very clear in, in, the, uh, in the New Testament, 
it's very difficult to escape the obvious conclusion that this was meant to be a literal physical resurrection from the dead. Yeah. Um, so this is, this is the thing that, um, that's like when Paul was being, uh, he was, he had been arrested and, uh, he'd been brought before the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he did something really shrewd. It's like, okay, why has this man been brought here? And he said, basically, this is due to the question. The reason I've been basically persecuted is because I believe in the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Now, you had two groups of people there. The Pharisees that believed in the future resurrection of the dead and the judgment and the Sadducees who did not. Yeah. He said, I am a Pharisee. I am. It's like, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. And the reason that I am being persecuted is because I believe that God resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead. And because I believe in the resurrection and that God actually resurrected Jesus Christ, that's why I am being persecuted. And then, of course, the Pharisees are like, whoa, wait a minute. Now, you know, we cannot, you know, the Pharisees are like, well, there ain't no resurrection. And the Pharisees are the Sadducees are like, there ain't no resurrection. And the Pharisees are like, there's, and there's a big dispute now because he has divided. He divided everybody. He divided the Pharisees and the Sadducees into their clash camps. And it's like, at that point, it's like, boom, that's mm-hmm. how you, uh, uh, and, and it's, so it's very shrewd what Paul did there. But he did not lie. No. He believed in a literal resurrection of the body for every believer in the same way that God literally resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead. So whenever you start spiritualizing the resurrection of the dead as the full preterists do, that's why when you start getting online and reading many times or reading in books, these things are hotly debated. Um, about this, you start finding out that, you know, there, this is where people are saying, okay, you have jumped the shark yeah, theologically to where now you're basically undercutting clear biblical doctrine and not just clear biblical doctrine. These are tenets of the faith. Yeah. It's like, this is foundation. This is foundational. You can't jettison this, spin this, change this. And so the full preterist take a lot of criticism and I believe deservedly so for this. The partial preterists who still look forward to the return, literal return of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the dead and the judgment, uh, uh, and the judgment that yes, you know, but I understand the motivation that the preterist camp, particularly the traditional uh, partial preterists have in trying to rescue. Now, the root of preterism, actually, it wasn't really kind of a Protestant thing. It was actually a Catholic thing. Really? It goes about 500 years ago to the time of the counter-revolution. Uh, pardon me, counter-revolution, counter-reformation. Um, um, the Reformation under the Reformers, Luther, Calvin, Knox, Zwingli, yeah. Melanchthon, and the rest, 
they were making hay because they interpreted the Bible by what was known as the historicist method, which is basically that God has been fulfilling the book of Revelation since the first century, even until their day, and would continue over vast bands of time until it was fulfilled. Okay? And they interpreted Scripture in the light of history and vice versa. In doing so, Luther and others identified the Antichrist as the Pope, the uh, basically... Uh, the papacy is the beast of Revelation, um, the whore of, of Babylon. I mean, um, let's just say... So like It's the government that's doing it. It's like um, the papacy pretty much got labeled as basically the sum of all evils. Okay? Um, so, the, and, and we'll talk more about that in the future. Uh, as we talk more about historicism, uh, but um, they were taking the Bible more literally. People had been allegorizing Scripture for a long time, go back to Origen and, yeah. and, and some of those church fathers. And ever since the uh, conversion of Constantine in around, I think, 325 or so, they pushed that, um, but it was obvious that right now the in the in the Reformation the reformers were making hay by basically saying look at what this these words, and then identifying um, the papacy as the fulfillment of these things, and gaining a whole lot of support. Well, obviously. The Vatican ain't going to put up with that. No. It's like we are not going to lose people to the reformers because of their because of the way they're because viewed. of their theological hermeneutic on 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 prophecy and the Book of Revelation specifically. Regardless of the fact that they think they're the beast, but whatever. But you know, like so, we're not going to lose that money. But it's like you know what we've got to figure out how to counter this. So. Part of what was called the Counter-Reformation, yeah. which is the attempt by Rome to actually undo what was being done by the Reformers, part of what they did is they had theologians working night and day to try to dodge theological bullets. Yeah. One of them came up with what is generally called the Preterist Method which is all of this happened in the first century. Well, if all of this happened in the first century and it's pretty much all been fulfilled, well, then obviously the Pope is not the Antichrist and yeah. the papacy is not the whore of Babylon or, or the beast or any of these other bodaciously bad things because all of this happened in the first century and it's, and already, been taken care it's of. already done. And all, you know... Also, another one came up with what's known as the Futurist Camp, which is none of this stuff has happened yet. Yeah. Okay. Now, you know, whether how sincere these two, uh, I think at least the one who came up with Preterism was a Jesuit. They may have both been. But regardless of their motivations, obviously they were motivated by a desire to um, the salvage, yeah. salvage the reputation of, the of, 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 of Rome yeah. from the reformers. 
And so it's like, well, if one of them's like, well, if it happened in the past, it's irrelevant. And the other one is, and, and it's wrong. And it's like, and the horse sources are wrong if it's happening in the future. Yeah. Um, call this theological deflection. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's like we can blame the past. We can or credit the past or the future, but we're not to blame because we're not it because it either has happened or it's going to happen. Yeah. Okay. But it's obviously so, not right now. But it's but it ain't right now and it ain't us. Yeah. And now, see, that's the kind of stuff. Welcome to Church Politics 101. Jeez. It is. <laughs> let me tell you something. It's a hoot. to, And so you have these three um lines of thought. The interesting thing is futurism, it ain't happened yet, is largely what is believed in evangelical circles in the United States. Yeah. It's no longer a Catholic thing. It really didn't get a lot of traction among the Catholics. <laughs> but they love um, that. The futurism. But it's gained a whole lot of traction with among um, evangelicals. Among evangelicals along with the develop of what's called uh, dispensational theology. More on that later. So these are basically the three large camps of interpretation, the preterist camp, the historicist camp, and the futurist camp. Okay. And so here in the United States, there's a whole lot of futurists. Um, but there are a number of preterists. They have been growing, apparently, in recent years. So the, you can't ignore these people by any means or their theological impact. But it's pretty obvious that while the full, the full preterists are taking severe amounts of grief um, because... It's like, you know what, you have jumped the shark of orth. You've jumped the orthodoxy shark and went completely uh, beyond. The partial preterists are still largely considered orthodox in their beliefs and and entirely sincere and uh, in their intent to rescue Christ from basically um, from himself from himself. Yeah, it's like, you know. And so you have, the, yeah. And so the question then becomes, how do you really interpret these scriptures? Yeah. Which hermeneutical camp do you fall into? And which way is the correct way to And which is the way to do it? And we'll talk about that in, in future episodes. But we kind of were originally starting to, we moved from how this originally happened. Again, the book of the revelation that was given to John on Patmos how revelation became a and so what you have is uh, a situation where you have you have these three different lines of thought which is preter- basic yeah, yeah. I, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it preterism so historicism good. futurism you got the p the h and the f yeah and you've got all those different lines of thinking and but originally we were getting back to John and Patmos. John and Patmos. So and how we, we even got the book itself. Exactly. So he's on the he's he's on the Isle of Patmos, and he has, um, basically, as he said, he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now I should mention here one of the things people you 
it says the re- the revelation of Saint John the Divine here at the top of my page here. Yeah. Well, obviously, in the very first verse, it says it's actually the revelation of Jesus Christ, which was then given to John. So it's really not in. It's really the revelation. You know, we're not revealing John, revealing revealing yeah. Christ. And one of the things that people need to understand is that word revelation. We we talk about the apocalypse. Yeah. That's what that basically is. Mm-hmm. And the word apocalypse has taken on a popular meaning. You know, you have Hollywood in a post-apocalyptic world. One yeah. man stood up. You know, everything kind of apocalyptic. You've got road warriors, basically. You know, exactly the whole. And it's like apocalyptic to the modern American mind is basically a series of civilization-ending disasters. Yeah that people live through and then it's like wow look at the wreckage yeah that's the apocalypse it's like the end of civilization the end of humanity the end of this that and the other uber destruction you know all they see is the all they see is death the funny thing about it is that's not the actual meaning of the word okay the actual meaning is unveiling Hmm. okay that's what it means and it's actually a term that comes from greek theater and basically, it means basically a person who steps out from behind a curtain. Okay. If you lead a performer out, you know, it's like, you know, on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson years ago, I remember, you know, there would be the parting of the curtain and Johnny Carson would step up out to do his nightly monologue, you know, yeah. on The Tonight Show. And it's like, it's like that. The curtains part and the individual who is the topic or the star, the the focus, steps out and is visibly seen. Yeah. Okay. So this is about the unveiling or revealing or appearing of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Okay. And so it was given by God to show, and it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, verse 1, which God gave unto him. To show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass, and he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, okay, who bore record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. And then it says here, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep the things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. And so what is he saying? He's saying, Listen. First of all, this was given by God to Christ and from by Christ to John, and that it is meant to be shared, okay? And John was faithful in doing so. He basically set it down just as it, as it was shown to him, and that if you read this and that you are attentive to it you you have understanding and you are obedient to keep the things that are written in this book um basically there are, there is a blessing for you in this mm-hmm. and you don't hear now all of scripture is a blessing yeah if we read it if we study it if we understand it if we practice it it's it's a blessing to us um but this is specifically said 
this book, this vision, this revelation, um, this unveiling, you do this, there's a promised blessing to you for this. Um, and so when you do this, it's like, you know what? This, this commands attention. Yeah. Anybody want a blessing? And so at that point, that's when John talks about basically he, he was caught in the spirit and the Lord's day and all this. So you have at this point this situation where John has a revelation given by God to Christ, to Christ, to, to John, so that the servants, the Christians, would have understanding of these events when they happened and what they mean and what we're to do. And so in that there is a blessing and we need to be understanding this. So again, like I say, how people have interpreted these things over the last 2000 years, Preterist camp, Historicist camp, uh, Futurist camp, you know, that's a hermeneutical debate. And an important one because how you interpret it uh, affects how you act upon it. Yeah. And so... Because if it's already in the past, then you're not going to act on any of it. Exactly. You're going to be pretty much but just if, going about your daily business. But if it's a, in the future, then you're going to probably look at it like everything is this, you know? Exactly. At this point, you're paying attention to what's going on in order to see whether these things are actually occurring at the moment. Have you reached the time? Yeah. And the historicist is, camp is, we have been in the time for nearly 2,000 years and will continue to be in the time. The only question is, how deeply into the time are we? Yeah. At what point in the time Does are we? Does it switch over? Yeah. Yeah, because obviously this will end, and how close to the end of these things are we? So, again, that's really where uh, a lot of this comes into play. And we'll be talking about that in in the future. But since we got heavily into talking about preterism today, um, I I wanted people to understand that because well, you need the, to understand the the three lines of thinking that yeah. go into this. Yeah, because at some point in time, people get online. Yeah, and they start looking for information on Bible prophecy. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, what happens is many times you find one person who's got a preterist uh, standpoint, one person who's got a futurist standpoint, one part who's got a historicist standpoint, and you're going from web page to web page and website to website, or sometimes ordering book to book, Yeah, and you don't see any consistency here, Mm-mm. which means that at that point, people tend to become confused. Yeah. They tend to become frustrated. And at they some don't point, because they're like this, one of them is wrong. Who do you believe? Exactly. And at some point, they just throw their hands up and they just start walking away and saying, you know what? I don't get it. I'm not going to get it. I'm not going to bother with it. Yeah. And so there's a lot of frustration there. So if you recognize that these camps exist from the get go and you recognize um, what they believe and why they believe it, then it's much more helpful for you as you develop your own uh, understanding 
and I, my thing is simply this. Um, I don't know how far we are into the program right now, time-wise, but let me let me put it th- this way because this is something I definitely want to touch on before we before we uh, go today, and that is first of all, people need to be examining this, the entirety of the scriptures, including the prophetic passages. They were not given for no reason. It says in Second Timothy, look. Um, study show yourself approved a workman needing not be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth and so it's important for us to study the word and to rightly divide it understanding it and understanding it in the correct way we are told in 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 the new testament that basically work out your own faith with fear and tremblings literally in the greek with phobias and traumas this is a serious thing we do Theology is not something that we take lightly. It's not, the Word of God is not something that we study cavalierly. We need to understand that this is important because this is life and death, and many times this is uh, eternity that we're speaking of here. What are, the, what are the major doctrines? What are the things that are salvation um, level issues? What are the things that are secondary issues that we can dispute about? Where is it that we that these things rank? And then how are we to live our lives in the light of these things? Prophecy included. And so we need to take what we do seriously. We need to try to, uh, by all means, be led by the Holy Spirit, um, who is the teacher, and, and will open up the Word of God to us as we sincerely seek understanding in these things and if we do that we will trust him to lead us in the right way and and he will and so but we need to understand this and again you just cannot jettison a major part of the bible because the thing about it is um the bible talks about that you know my people perish from a lack of knowledge that's in the Old Testament, and people quote that very, you know, you know. But it was not the things that they never knew. It was the truth that, that they were presented with that they rejected. And the problem is what you don't know can hurt you. And uh, if you reject truth, that's being out there. And truth is out there. Truth can be found. It can be found in these pages. There are good biblical, biblically-based teachers and preachers who are proclaiming the truth of God's Word. They are still out there. There are a lot of fruit Loops, but there are still a lot of solid, grounded men and women who are proclaiming the truth of God's Word. And so, as and, and uh, even apart from that, the Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth if we rely on Him. And study these things out. This is not an impossible task. People may be frustrated uh, many times when they when they start out, especially if they're starting out. You know, a lot of times new converts get really into Bible prophecy. Yeah, and they're excited about it, but they quickly become frustrated about it. Because you know what? They're having a hard time understanding it or something. Right, and and so it's like don't become frustrated. Don't become weary in well-doing. 
Continue to study, continue to read, continue to learn. Understanding will come. And, and so what we're trying to do as part of this is to give people an understanding of, first of all, you know, today we gave a little background on the book itself that it was given to John on Patmos at a time of persecution in the first century and that it did make its way into the canon of scripture. It was deemed authentic writings of John the Apostle by the church when the canon of scripture was completed and has been so for many, many centuries now. That being said, what we need to do now is, is understand how do we understand this and how do we interpret this? What hermeneutics are out there? And the hermeneutic methodologies that are the most common are futurism, historicism, preterism. Yeah. With preterism basically being the smallest of, of, the, of the three, at least particularly so in this country. We've talked about that in some in some length. Um, we need to get into the historicist um, viewpoint in a future program uh, because it was extremely popular. Really, in basically all of the reformers lockstep were historicists. Really, okay. Luther, Calvin, Knox, the whole Everyone, gang. The big, the heavy hitters. Yes. Futurism did not really gain traction until the 1800s. Oh, wow. So it's... So it's, it's, it has become, in America, probably the most predominant. So, but it's still fairly view. new. Like. But it's, it's, it's generally, especially among Protestants, um, it, it's, that interpretation has become very new. But going back say some 500 plus years historicism has been around for many centuries and so it definitely needs to be looked at and in much more depth i've i've touched on uh preterism uh in this and i think you can begin to see where some of the difficulties in it lay the full preterisms group you yeah, know when they start hitting the foundational issues then it's pretty obvious that they've jumped the shark. The uh, the preterists, who are the partial, the traditional ones, you know what? I recognize their sincerity. I appreciate their their motivations, but the truth of the matter is, and and again, we will have to deal with these passages yeah. in Matthew twenty four and such, the gospel not going over the cities and towns of. Of Israel, uh, of, uh, of Israel before the return, the this generation shall not. What did Jesus actually mean by these words? Yeah, you know, did he really think it was going to happen in the first century? Answer: No, because there are things that Jesus say that tell you in his other statements, in other way, in other places, that there is going to be a much longer span of time yeah. between his first coming and his second coming. And many people, people did not appreciate that. Um, so we will focus on those. There are, for everyone that appears to give a necessity for a swift fulfillment of 
prophecy, say first century, there are just as many scriptures that make it clear this ain't going to happen overnight. This is not going to be a quick first century deal. And we'll deal with that in the future. It's obviously something that is going to take a long time. Oh, yeah. And I know growing up, that's always been something that it's like, um, always been hearing about Jesus can come at any minute. It is any second. Oh, no. You know, it's one of those things where it's like, that's pretty much what you've grown up on. And it's. Well, that's it. And, you know, the and that's a debate right now. Yeah. What the way the world is right now. Well, that's it. Uh, the belief that the uh, that Jesus Christ can return at any second, what is referred to as the doctrine of imminence, that the imminent return of Jesus Christ, he can have it any second. Yeah. And then there are some that say, no, it can't. There are still things that have to happen first, unfulfilled prophecies, and Jesus cannot return until then. And then you get into the debate. Well, some say, well, yes, there may be things that have to be fulfilled before the second coming of Jesus Christ. But then there's going to be the secret pre-tribulation rapture. Uh, yeah. And so he can come. That's where. And, and so it's like, yes, his second coming has to be preceded by events to be fulfilled. But his uh, coming for the saints at the rapture that could be any can be any second now and so at that point then you get into debates about the rapture yeah and so and that's where some yeah. real bloodletting begins and rapture's gonna have its own episode it's gonna have to it the, yes that is that is going to because there are so many there are the rapturist camp the anti-rapturist camp and within the rapturous camp, you have the pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, pre-wrath, and end-of-tribulation camps, which is essential. And it's like, oh, boy, <laughs> yeah. there's going to be a whole lot to unpack. Yeah. So I feel like we pretty much made a good effort on the introduction of what the book of Revelation is. We've kind of given everybody a good idea on uh, how we got the book, where it came from. And the different viewpoints on how to even interpret the book. So I feel like we're going to go ahead and draw this episode to a close since we've already got the the introduction of it settled. And then uh, in in a future episode, we will go deeper into what the book itself is actually saying. Exactly. Yeah.